This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5 p.m. in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, things are just beginning to roll over a little bit in these markets. Um, I'm looking at a U.S. market beginning to certainly come uh, down towards session lows. S&P down by nine-tenths of one percent. Bonds under a little bit of pressure as well. The U.S. two-year up by over seven basis points. Yeah, Guy, it definitely feels like we don't know where we're going, and so people are just kind of selling the stuff. And and, and I say that because you're looking at two-year up by seven, eight basis points on relatively okay retail sales either way. It really didn't move the needle any way you look. Um, It's a safety bid when it comes to the equity market, like healthcare is the best-performing sector, but the commodities are getting crushed, um, and tech really rolling over. Yeah. I think the market's struggling. Just the, We are struggling for a narrative. We are struggling for a sense of direction. The Fed's got us a little perplexed. I, there's this expectation that the Fed is going to ultimately buckle and won't deliver the rate hikes that it says it's going to. But it keeps saying that it's going to. And I think the market's finding that very hard. You've got Dalio and various other people talking about still some significant downside mm-hmm. here for equities. We'll talk about this a little bit later on in the program. Let's get some headlines now. Here's Mr. Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much indeed. Guy Johnson, here's what's going on. Prime Minister Liz Truss's spokesman says King Charles will be hosting a reception of world leaders in London on Sunday ahead of the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Max Blaine said Truss will also attend and host other meetings separately. The Queen's state funeral will take place Monday at 11 a.m. Liz Truss's government could drop its crackdown on junk food as part of a wider effort to ease the burden on businesses and consumers struggling with the growth cost-of-living crisis. The Prime Minister's predecessor, Boris Johnson, put those plans in motion after being admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 in April of 2020. He said he suffered from a very common underlying condition of being, quote, too fat. Studies have shown obese people have a higher risk of experiencing complications or dying from the virus. Hundreds of workers at an Amazon warehouse in Coventry have begun a formal strike ballot, adding to a season of widespread industrial action in Britain. The GMB union says the ballot will run until October 19th. It says action to protest against the company's pay packages will likely take place in November, which could potentially disrupt distribution activity on Black Friday and Christmas. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Biggest story in the city of London today, Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, looking to scrap bankers' bonus caps. These were caps that were put in place uh, after the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, They were put in place across the EU, but potential Brexit bonus means that Maybe they can go now. Kwasi Kwarteng looking for a Big Bang 2.0, echoing echoing the sort of the Thatcher uh, Big Bang, um, opening up the city of London. That is his plan. How realistic is this? And is this a vote winner? Bloomberg's Michael Moore joins us now to give us his take on this. Um, Michael, talk me through the advantages and the opportunity here for the Chancellor to remove these limitations. And how onerous are they? 
So I think, you know, this has been floated uh, a few times in recent years, um, you know, in the, in the eight years since this was put into place, and it's always seen as kind of politically toxic. There's not a ton of public support for uh, making bankers' lives easier. But, um, you know, it could fit into this broader push of, you know, we want to unleash the city of London, we want to be more competitive than the European Union, um, and you know, that comes as, as the ECB has been pushing banks to move more bankers from London to the EU. So uh, there could be uh, a better chance this time around than, than what we've seen previously. Um, that said, you, you know, you're already seeing uh, some on, on the left um, really pushing back against uh, this idea. Um, is this to compete with the U.S., Frankfurt, or Paris? So I think... You know, I think it's more about competing with Frankfurt and Paris because that's where um, the bonus cap remains. And, uh, you know, there's been banks have been dealing with this for so long that they've kind of, you know, they have some workarounds. um, They've kind of gotten used to life under this. So I don't think this would be like a day one game changer uh, for the banks, but it would remove a headache for them. You know, a lot of the executives here have big fixed pay allowances to make up for the fact that they're not getting the cash bonuses that their U.S. colleagues are. Um, So I think that would make things a little bit easier for the banks. How hard will this be to unwind? So I think, you know, you'd have to imagine it'd have to be part of some bigger package um, that has uh, some other ideas uh, as uh, to unlock the city as well. Um, but, you know, if Liz Truss is going to push this idea of, of, you know, Big Bang 2.0, this could fit in within that. Mm-hmm. Do we trust it? Like, who's to say that, like, in a little bit, we just don't reverse it? Um, I think if you get rid of the bonus cap, there would not be a huge push for it. I mean, the BOE has said, you know, they've never been in favor of it. Um, They think the senior manager's regime and clawbacks are a better uh, way of guarding against bad behavior, risky behavior, than a simple bonus cap. Um, So I don't you know, it's one of those, it's unpopular to remove, but it, once it's gone, I don't think there would be a huge push unless you got another crisis um, where you had bad behavior. Cool. Michael Moore, thanks a lot. Always appreciate it. Love to get your perspective. Uh, Michael Moore joining us, uh, talking about the UK bonus um, a lift cap. Lift cap? Cap lift? Lifting removal? the cap. Removal? Lifting the removal of the cap? Excellent. Um, it's going well. It's going really well. It's really well. Uh, all right. So that's one part of it. Um, I guess the hope is that they also wind up staying in London and buying things, which you have to wonder, so that's, is that that's more inflationary, oddly? Yeah, that's, and it doesn't send a great great message at a time when wage restraint, constraints is part of the national narrative. I Inflation inflation is a big problem. Uh, you're seeing significantly below um, inflation wage rounds coming from the public sector, as a result of which we're getting strikes. This doesn't exactly send the right message on that front, which is why this doesn't look like a vote winner, which makes you wonder why are they doing it. I, Theresa May has talked about the fact that she sees the City of London as being a sort of jewel in the crown to come back to, to what is happening on the royal mm-hmm. royal front. Boris Johnson didn't have that relationship. He had a very arm's length, and I'm being generous here, relationship with the City of London. But it is a huge 
revenue generator and mm-hmm. a and a huge employer. But but I think this also sets up a, a really well with um, what John Arthur's column was about today, which I thought laid everything out nicely, which is the debate and the struggle that's going to be unfolding over the next couple months and years over fiscal versus monetary policy. Central banks want to tighten policy. They want to attack inflation. But then it seems like the fiscal authorities are doing everything to prevent that from actually happening, whether yep. that's, as you mentioned, putting, gas, um, put, putting price caps on what you're going to pay for gas or electricity, which leaves more money in your pocket, whether it's lifting uh, bank bonus caps, uh, whether it's going to be about some kind of stimulus in the form of we want more alternative energy investments, um, etc. Those two don't... One plus one there does not make two. It's more like they're saying one plus one makes five. Yeah, and it's almost the exact reverse as well of 2008. We came out of that financial crisis with fiscal austerity and monetary looseness. We're going into this crisis with fiscal... Well, okay, let's be generous here. Uh, An open checkbook. Um, and and a uh, and a check with it is being firmly closed mm-hmm. by the Bank of England. So it's a complete reversal of that. 2008. Uh, a lot of people are thinking about that right now in terms of of what is happening and how bad ultimately maybe the financial markets could see things turn into. Hugh Hendry, an old friend of mine, talked to us a little bit earlier on Bloomberg Television. We're going to get his take next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Um, Hugh Hendry used to run a very well-known hedge fund uh, here in London. It's called Eclectica. Um, It made a lot of headlines. He made a lot of headlines. Then he basically retreated from, from... financial services from running a hedge fund, disappeared off to the Caribbean, some Barts. He's now back and he's got a podcast called AcidCapital.com. He joined Alex and I a little bit earlier on. We kicked off with his comparisons of what we're going through now with 2008, the great financial crisis. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. I want to raise the stakes. I actually fear this could be more severe than 2008 because we may have muted the ability of the Federal Reserve to underwrite a binary situation. In, 2000, in March 2009, just before the advent of quantitative easing, right? Yep. Uh, Citigroup traded, I think, at nine bucks, uh, which was the same price as prevailed in the 1970s. But nine bucks was nine bucks too much, it was bankrupt. The system was set to reset to zero with the bankruptcy of the global financial system, and the Fed underwrote the financial system. Or I would say, as an agent of all of us, it underwrote yep. the financial. Will it be able to do so again? This market wants that question answered. And like Mark said, this market is going to go, it's like deep sea diving without air, is going to go to a depth below the surface, probably in that 30 to 50% below the all time high. And it's going to wait and it's going to say to the Fed, what you going to do? And what will the Fed do? Um, that's well, do you know, it's what the Fed is doing now, which is the concern because they're not listening to heavens, what was it? It's. Um, uh, what's he called? Lao Tzu, the, the, you know, the mythical Asian philosopher. And he said, treat the world as you find it. Don't interfere with it. Accept it. Okay. Yep. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, bubbles are fine. They're not fine, but they're kind of sustainable as long as there's kind of no, there's zero financing. But the Fed has become aggravated and is changing carry. Yeah, mortgage rates in America have doubled to over 6%. You were seeing various credit, uh, credit yields blowing out you know, within, 
We're seeing drama in Italy. We're seeing drama in the foreign exchange markets. In the most unsuspecting places, like the solidity of the yen has just slipped like sand into the sea, okay? Why? Because the Fed is tampering and is calling upon the spirit of Volcker from the 1970s. Why is that? Why could that be catastrophically wrong? Because the 1970s was 40 years after the bankruptcy of the US financial system, right? And we had 40 years where we deleveraged and global debt was like one times yep. GDP. Today it's five times. If you raise rates, the whole edifice of this system so to could Mark, crash. To, to Mark's point, there's too much dry tinder out there. If you light the fire, how fast does it burn? Absolutely. This is all about It is profound market turning points are always about collateral, always about the undermining of confidence in collateral. Collateral is money. Okay, when you start raising rates, the, the ECB, remember the ECB are rather blind. These are the agents who rose rate, raised rates in June 2008. Yep. Yeah, Trichet. The, the verb tricher um, is, to, is to lie. Make of that what you will. It, they, they certainly couldn't see the future. Okay, they just raised rates, what, 75 basis points last week. Consequences, okay, consequences. Back in 2012, when Draghi said, BTPs, we stand behind them. 10-year Italian bonds yep. are the equivalent of boons. The problem mm -hmm. is the German government doesn't produce enough bonds, and bonds are money. And so what happened is the Euro-dollar financial banking system, the system that creates and prints money across the world, decided to use BTPs. This is analogous to the global, uh, the global banking system using mortgage-backed securities as collateral with the conceit and the arrogance that this was a great idea until it wasn't. That was Hugh Hendry, Hugh Hendry uh, joining us there. Man, that was a really fun interview. I mean, I, I have to say you should go and watch the whole thing online because he went on to talk about how, what do you do? Like, what is a safe asset? Um, he definitely thinks that going long volatility is the way to go, but volatility where is really the question. He was looking at uh, dollar UN, for example, and then he's just like, go take your money out and just go sit somewhere, probably at St. Bart's, um, and just wait for it to all be over. Yeah, he, he is. He's like, you got, you got to leave the casino got to leave the casino. Walk away, yeah, fair enough. Walk away. But you walk out of the casino, that's the question. you you got money in your pocket if you've done well. Where do you, what do you do with it? He was just like, leave it in your pocket. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So Guy's gotten on a plane recently. I have not. I will be getting on a plane in October. But nevertheless, people are still buying tickets to go do stuff. The narrative was that once the kids started school, everyone would be staying home and no one would be traveling on planes. It doesn't necessarily appear that that is happening. So Guy and I caught up with Barry Biffle. He's the president and CEO of Frontier Airlines. It is a domestic low-cost carrier here in the U.S. And we started off asking about the outlook uh, for the fall. All indications are that uh, the consumer is strong and uh, we've never seen kind of this off-season period be this strong. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to the holidays. Is, is It's probably going to be the merriest Christmas we've ever had uh, from a from an airline perspective. Barry, are people booking that far out right now? Because I feel like the read a couple months ago was that people were really holding tight and booking at the very last minute. Is that still the trend? Well, not, not for the holidays. And in fact, if, if there's a flight that you want, you, you probably better buy it. Because uh, I think when we get a little closer, I think that the best flights are going to be sold out. In terms of how the consumer is behaving, are they starting to trade down? You are a, you are a ultra low cost carrier. In terms of where so you want to be, full service, ultra low cost, 
is the consumer going to be migrating towards you? So we are seeing a little bit of the Walmart effect, right? You know, we've seen the highest incomes we've ever seen, uh, but it's driven by two factors, right? There is some trade down coming coming our way, uh, but also we're just seeing people with a lot more money. And I, I think you know, when you look at the airline industry broadly, uh, you would expect with some recessionary concerns that you would have you know, a demand pullback. But what you have to remember is that capacity broadly is still not back to mm-hmm. 2019 levels and we should be even higher. So I think you have a pretty soft landing uh, in the airline space, because if there's any pullback, there's there's more than enough capacity reduction to keep the pricing, you know, stable for for the industry. Um, at the same time, I feel like in some ways the big carriers maybe trying to get more competitive, like the United, the Delta, the American, cutting uh, low cost fares there to sort of lure passengers to them. Do you feel like you have different competition this time around? So, so the thing that's changed since pre-pandemic is is the cost structures are actually widening. Uh, when you look at debt included. So the, a lot of the big carriers took on so much debt and they've got to cover that, right? And their credit rating matters when they go to roll over that debt. So that pressure is act- actually healthy for the broader industry. So we're seeing that in the pricing stability. Where are you still seeing shortages? We've clearly seen an issue with pilots. Is that the only st- area we're still suffering from? What's happening on the ground? What's happening operationally right now? that you're really struggling with so so we've actually seen you know a lot of uh, a lot of those challenges with staffing pretty much subside you know if you take the airport environment as an example you know we, we we've struggled for the last year and a half i think the whole industry has uh, but we're now fully staffed and, and we've, we're now seeing it we're seeing attrition fall way down and we're seeing you know people yep. accepting jobs so i think there's 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 light at the end of the tunnel if you think about it from a uh, overall economic perspective and unemployment perspective. So I think you know, hopefully we'll see good news uh, with those numbers in the next few months as a result. There was a headline yesterday that Delta is hiring, I think it was like 2,000 pilots. Um, you guys have a pilot cadet program where basically if you don't have flying experience, you can still apply. I know you're in the middle of launching it, but what kind of conversations are you having around it? What kind of interest are you getting? We've had huge interest. In fact, in the first month, we had uh, around 600 applications. Um, so, so we're really excited about it. And uh, it controls the supply for us and, and ensures that we'll have plenty of capacity uh, of pilots as we grow. So a lot of excitement about it. And I think as people are being forced to go back into the office, they're deciding, you know, maybe maybe an office at 36,000 feet is, is a better better window view. Barry Biffle joining us from Frontier. Frontier is, for those that don't know it in the UK, it is an ultra low cost Um kind of think Ryanair, think Wiz. Those are the kind of business models that we're talking about here. And Alex, it's going to be really interesting to see how consumers come out of a summer where they've been spending quite a lot on travel. There's a lot of pent-up demand that has been there and whether or not they continue doing that. I understand the holidays. Mm-hmm. People are going to want to see their family around those holidays. And I think probably the uh, the, the COVID story taught us that those dates, dates are important. But elsewhere into next year, I think the picture looks a little trickier. But I, I think what I've learned is that no one has accurately predicted what the consumer is going to do. Nope. Because the narrative a few months ago was that the fall was going to tank and the visibility and the visibility into bookings was going to fall. Didn't happen. We were going to stop spending everything. That didn't happen. I feel like everyone's gotten it wrong. Um, so we might want to write off the consumer a little bit into the winter. But now I don't know. Now I feel like you can't make a call on the consumer. What I also think is interesting, much to your chagrin, is is the fact that. The retailers have decided that the, they're comfortable with holding quite a lot of inventory. Mm-hmm. They've ordered less, so there's less coming. 
And as a result of which, they're just going to sit on inventory and let the consumer deal with it. Chagrin? Really? We say chagrin. Is it a chagrin? Chagrin? It's a very fancy way of saying that. I'm a fancy kind of bloke. It's true. He is. Um, He's not really. Um, Yes, and I was reading after we got the, and we'll talk about this later on in the show, but when we got the retail sales today for August for the U.S., they did show, though, that real spending in retailers fell a bit. So the idea that, okay, that's rolling over a bit, the discounting hasn't happened yet, but at some point the two shall meet and you will have to discount. Like once spending falls off <laughs> enough, you'll have to discount. I appreciate, I could be talking my own book on this one. But um, the game here. Yep. But there was one other economist who did say that too. So uh, it does feel like that could be coming. But again, to the point, I feel like every call that's been made about the consumerist has been wrong. So like I say Everybody, that now I, and who knows? Everybody's struggling. I, nobody, I, the models don't work right mm-hmm. now. Everybody's struggling to figure out what is happening. The consumer is clearly very fickle and is being driven by emotion, which is very hard to predict, I think. I think behavioral economics, I, there's going to be a lot written about what is happening right now in textbooks over the years to come. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to call it. And that's why the market is struggling so well, much. And, and imagine if we do get, and we'll talk about this also, is that if we get that 4.5% Fed funds rate, which is what Ray Dalio wrote about on LinkedIn yesterday, and then you get a 20% decline in stocks, and it could be even worse, and there is no Fed put on the way down. Oh, my gosh. Imagine yeah, well, the retrenchment he's, that he's we're going to see in this consumer. Half, he's talking about 45 as being the bottom of the range. So I think Six it's going to be interesting... Top. Yeah, six percent. So it, that's going to be interesting. How much of how much of the, what happens in financial markets drives consumption? I think is going to be really interesting. And we're talking not just about equity markets, bond markets, etc. Also, the housing market I think plays a really, really big part in this. So, so as we start to see all these stories unwinding, what was it six percent today on a mortgage rate in the U.S.? Yippers, first time, long time. Yeah, these are high numbers relative high. to recent history. This is been. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio, uh, Bloomberg DAB The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. A quick check in here on where U.S. markets are. I was just taking a look at, at the tape because they're getting a little uglier as we go on here. The S&P is now off by a full percentage point. The Nasdaq off by 1.3%. A big part of that, obviously, is the yield story with two-year yields kind of jumping higher here, uh, up by about 7, 8 tenths of 1%. Also, you had the 5 and the 30-year inverted by 20 basis points today. I mean, these are really huge moves all across the board, but little narrative and little conviction. Um, that's a snapshot in the market. Let's get a snapshot of the news. Here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The UK will hold a nationwide two-minute silence on Monday as the funeral of Queen Elizabeth ends. Thousands of mourners, meanwhile, waited hours today in line for the chance to spend a few minutes filing past the coffin of Queen Elizabeth while it lay in state at Britain's Parliament as King Charles spent the day in private to reflect on his first week on the throne. The queue to pay respects to the late Queen at Westminster Hall stretched by this afternoon to 4.4 miles, a nine-hour wait. Many saying they didn't mind that wait. Russian President Vladimir Putin has told his counterpart Xi Jinping he understands Beijing's questions and concerns about his invasion of Ukraine. As the Chinese leader said, the two countries could, quote, inject stability and positive energy to a world in chaos. Plans for the first electric airliner have taken a step forward as Swedish startup Hart Aerospace boosted its design to 30 seats and announced a factory site and one investment from Saab.
Ryanair, meanwhile, scrapping flights today because of a walkout by French controllers impacting about 80,000 passengers. Schiphol Airport's Dick Benshop is stepping down as CEO of the Dutch Hub as the airport continues to struggle with long lines and flight cancellations caused by a staffing shortage. And food for thought, will this come to the United Kingdom? Bank of America is starting a paid sabbatical program to reward its long-term employees starting with four weeks off for those who have spent 15 years with the company. Hmm. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. I thought it was six. Six or four? I I believe four Four. weeks. Uh, I could be wrong, but I believe four weeks, yeah. Which isn't bad. I mean, I I would take it. Uh, Yeah, I think a lot of people would would probably take that. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the person who had like four months off to deal with long COVID, so I'm not one to shrink back from that. Um, Charlie, thank you very much. My pleasure as always. We'll catch you tomorrow. Um, So something um, that wasn't being priced in necessarily, but would have huge implications, Guy, for the the U.S. economy was the shutdown of the railway system. Um, It appears that the unions and um, the companies have reached a deal with the help of the government. Absolutely. Uh, the Biden administration playing a key role in what was happening here. Uh, one of the key concerns of the labor unions was what was happening on paid sick leave. Uh, it looks like a deal has been done there. It's a provisional deal, still needs to be ratified by members. But President Biden, I have to say, in the Rose Garden a little earlier, sounding very happy. Today is a win, and I mean it sincerely, a win for America. Together, we reached an agreement, you reached an agreement that will keep our critical rail system working and avoid disruptions of our economy. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed on that. So let's get some on-the-ground reporting here. Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta uh, joins us live right now from Greenville Yard in New Jersey. Um, Kriti, first of all, where are you? What does it look like? What's happening? So I am in the Greenville Yard in Jersey City, New Jersey. This is a spot which is known for intermodal cargo, which is a really key part of the story. And I'll get to it in a second. But basically, when you have things shipped to the United States, moved to a train, moved to a truck, it happens right where I am. So basically, all around me, you have a bunch of trucks, a lot of cargo, a lot of containers um, that will then go on a train that will then go on ships even. Um, And within that, you have things that range from clothing items, like retail items, all the way to brand new vehicles. So something that we saw coming right in was lines and lines of brand new vehicles on trucks that simply have nowhere to go right now because intermodal traffic, the idea that cargo hits these multiple types of transportation, were halted because of the anticipation of these rail strikes. So it looks like the rail strikes are now not happening. Why are they not happening? What kind of a deal needed to be done to get everybody on the same page? So there were two issues here. Of course, wages is something that everyone is talking about from Deere to Kellogg to PepsiCo. Uh, The other big issue for these workers specifically is going to be the sick leave issue that you mentioned, Guy. Now, what's important here is that the railroad industry is the backbone of America and doesn't really get a ton of attention. 30% of all cargo in the United States is transported by freight. And what happened during COVID was that this industry specifically saw this massive removal of workers from their labor force. And they had started introducing policies like the point system, for example, if you are to call in late, or if you are called in, you have 90 minutes, you're not able to make it, you are deducted on a point system. And that Mm. actually ended up penalizing a lot of the workers who didn't have the same kind of flexibility that they have perhaps pre-COVID. So that was something that ended up becoming a major sticking point. And it also ended up um, 
actually making this deal. Now you have negotiations that include voluntary assigned days off. They can take time off to go to a doctor's appointment. They couldn't do that before. And on top of that, they're not paying extra to do that, which is something the railroads really wanted. Um, In terms of what happens next, so as I understand it, this isn't like a silver bullet. There's like three weeks now where the union, they say they promise not to strike, then they're going to go back and review the deal, etc. Is there anything else happening within these three weeks? Like how fragile do you get the sense that this system still is? So it is still very fragile. And here's why. It's because a lot of the damage has kind of already been done. It was done on Monday uh, when you had a lot of companies, for example, halt fuel shipments or halt hazardous materials. Uh, shipments. It was done on Wednesday when Amtrak said we're canceling long distance uh, tra- uh, train travel. Those are all things that take time to restart. You've seen that, Alex, you know this better than anyone in the commodity industry. You can't just start and stop operations that quickly, especially when it comes to cargo. Uh, so that's really where the concern is. As far as the silver, silver bullet goes, we still need union membership to actually ratify the deal. If they do ratify the deal, they get about an average of $11,000 of a bonus uh, right on the spot. And then all things are great. All uh, skies are clear. But if they don't, built into the fine print of the tentative agreement, this is the key word tentative, is that three-week delay, Alex, that you mentioned, in which the Biden administration will continue to kind of become a mediator between uh, the labor unions and the railroads. And they're still going to try to work it out. At the end of the three weeks, though, Unions can go on strike and we are right back where we started. So we're not there yet. And it's still very fragile. Gritty, final quick question. How profitable are the railways in the United States? They are run for profit. How profitable are they? They are very profitable and they've been extra profitable with the supply crisis. I'll give you some numbers, Guy. We never really talk about the stock market impact here, but I'm a market scout, as you guys know. Um, if you talk about what some of these companies are trading at, for example, tech trades is about 25 times their price to earnings ratio. These railroads trade at about 20. If you look at other passenger travel, for example, they trade at about five times their earnings. So that's how profitable these railroads are. CSX, Norfolk Mm -hmm. Southern, trucking companies, the same deal. They are, for the stock market, priced very, very highly in those valuations, those profits. They've only gone up since COVID and those supply chain issues really ramped up. Yeah, such great reporting, Kriti. We really appreciate it. It's really super fun to have someone in the field right now on this. Uh, Kriti Gupta joining us from Jersey City on the rail strikes. And you have to wonder, Guy, that this isn't the only industry that's going to get hit, that they're, that the more profitable companies get, the more the workers are going to want a piece of that pie. And I think that this could just be the beginning. This is the wage price spiral, right, that we keep on being worried about, or at least central bankers do. Absolutely. And, and this is this is this is... Uh, it's a deal. It's a good deal in some ways for Labour. The president certainly seemed very happy about it. It's something he's going to tout widely, I suspect, as we head into the midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll continue the conversation. More on markets next. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. To be honest, I think um, a lot of this is kind of semantics. I, I don't think we would have expected Xi Jinping not to have uh, stood shoulder to shoulder uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he cannot be happy with what he's watching going on over there. 
George Magnus joining us at Oxford University a little bit earlier on, talking about the first face-to-face that we've seen uh, since the Winter Olympics between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader. Xi Jinping has not left China for, I think, circa a 1,000 days. This is a significant development from, from, from him uh, and maybe signals he's fairly comfortable with what's happening at home. The question is, is he comfortable with what is happening abroad? Uh, He has a close relationship with Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, but he has significant concerns, it seems, about the war in Ukraine. Bloomberg's Ros Matheson joining us now to discuss. Ros, these two in the past have indicated how close they are. How close are they now as a result of this Ukrainian war? What can we take away from today's meeting? Well, it's interesting to see some of the language that was used today. Um, you wouldn't call it any more effusive than it was in their meeting before the war broke out. Um, so you wouldn't say that things uh, have warmed up further since then. But it was a careful meeting uh, where the language was very calibrated. Of course, Xi Jinping again called Vladimir Putin an old friend um, and said they're willing to work together. Um, but most of the language was really focused around sort of joint areas of, of interest, um, be it sort of common challenges, um, the environment, uh, Taiwan, that kind of thing, and less about sort of waiting in on Ukraine proper. So certainly you can take from that that there's a, perhaps a bit of disquiet in China about the trajectory of the war, certainly how long it's gone on for. Um, you can imagine that Vladimir Putin, if anything, mm-hmm. probably uh, was, was telling Xi Jinping it would not be going on seven months later. So you can well, reading, be- reading between the lines a bit of upset about that, possibly. Well, to that point, though, I mean, like, they greeted each other as old friends, they're close friends. At some point, close friends need help. And I wonder if you have the um, idea that there's been any talk about military aid or financial aid, because that's really what Russia needs, right? And if you're really good friends, wouldn't that be a question to ask for? Well, there were no major deals that were announced, at least publicly, out of this. Um, And so far, what we've seen is a high level of caution from China about getting drawn too deeply into supporting Russia, you know, on, on Ukraine, be it with financial aid, um, specifically staying away from supplying Russia with weapons, because that really then pulls China in as an active participant, which is something it really does not want to be doing. So it doesn't want to sort of criticise Russia for its actions publicly, but equally it doesn't want to be seen to be really supporting Russia militarily. Um, that said, if it's in the interest of China economically to be buying more Russian energy um, and to be still doing some business with, with Russian companies, that's certainly something they're going to do. Uh, it just seems that for now they've been quite careful not to overstep too much on the sanctions that they've not joined in because they just don't want to draw the attention further of the US and others in that regard. So it's probably still not something yet that China's willing to step into. China wants Russia to be anti-Western, anti-United States. If, if this war continues along its current trajectory with the Ukrainians making the kind of advances they are, there are questions going to be asked about Vladimir Putin's leadership. If you were to see a significant about-face in Russia and that it was to have new leadership and was to turn more positive on the West, how big a blow would that be for China? Well, that is the thing, because you can see that there are mutual interests here between Russia and China and certainly an interest in supporting each other sort of on the global stage or diverting um, criticism away from each other. And I want to raise the stakes. I actually... In- Xi Jinping's interest to have Vladimir Putin very much 
staying in power um, because he, they, you know, Vladimir Putin has talked about China being the centre of a new global order, essentially, and Russia mm-hmm. playing a role in that. So um, it's, you can imagine that Xi Jinping has, a, has an interest in that happening. Um, whether that extends to military support for Ukraine is another thing, but you can imagine sort of some efforts yeah. at least perhaps to continue trade with Russia. Hey, Ross, thanks a lot. We always appreciate the insight. Ross Matheson joining us on a Putin and Xi meeting. Coming up, we're going to take our focus back here to the U.S. and talk about consumers. What are we doing? What are we buying? We'll break it down with Mike McKee. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. We've been talking about it. Let's get to the actual data from today. So in the U.S., August retail sales... um, on a total basis, went up by about three-tenths of 1%. That's the headline. But you back out things like gas, like autos, it was up only 3%. Plus, you had July was revised lower as well. And the control group, that's the input into GDP, comes in flat. Let's break it down. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, uh, joins me now. What is the right takeaway from these numbers? The takeaway would be that the, uh, the consumer significantly slowed buying goods uh, and also that gasoline prices went down. Uh, we had a big drop, 4.2% in gasoline sales, maybe not as big as, as people thought, but um, this measure is reported in dollars. So if, uh, if, if in dollars, <laughs> fewer dollars are spent, then the uh, number goes down. But we didn't see big increases in other areas. We saw a little bit of an increase in department stores and apparel stores, but it was back to school season. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is these are not adjusted for inflation. So lop off part of it uh, to try and get an idea of uh, what people were spending, and you end up with a negative number probably. And so uh, it, it shows that the economy is is slowing. Now, the question is, did people spend more on services because they are tired of buying goods, they did it for two and a half years, or have people just stopped spending? That That's what we don't know. How will the Fed read this number? Uh, it's kind of a mixed uh, news for them. I mean, once they adjust for inflation, uh, this is what they anticipate seeing, is what everybody should anticipate seeing. They're making it more expensive to borrow, and so you want to slow demand. And so demand clearly slowed in this report. The question is, does it go any further? Does it? Uh, do we start to get real negative reports and people stop spending on anything? That's what the Fed's going to have to watch for. And the problem for them, as we discussed a lot, is this is all backward-looking data, so mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to know where we're going from here. I'm talking my book again. I was mentioning this earlier, but you had um, retailers spending on a real adjusted basis slowed a bit, but the discounting is not there yet. Is that to come? There's only one right answer to this question, people. Asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Asking for a friend. Uh, It's kind of funny because I have um, read a lot of analysis by uh, Wall Street analysts who cover retailers who all say that their companies are reporting discounting. And it doesn't show up in the statistics yet, but it should. So I would anticipate that is going to happen, Alex. Um, 
Uh, one caveat being, we know that China has slowed again on the yeah. uh, in in the supply chain thing. So uh, they may be a little reluctant because they want to see if they'll get their their holiday season supplies. So just just come back, just explain the data to me in a little bit more detail. We are seeing a dollar amount drop, but it's not showing discounting. That's what it appears. Uh, we have not seen a big rise in uh, the number of uh, in the amount of sales at uh, apparel stores or um, but it's but it, so how do we tell whether it's discounting or not discounting if the dollar amount goes down well you know you have to or put stable. more than more than one index together uh, when right. we looked at the CPI we saw apparel prices rise uh, in the CPI okay. and so you put the two that together with the the sales and you figure it's not discounting at this point um, do we know what the consumer is doing do you have any clarity, any idea think, of what we're going to uh, do over the next six months? Well, some Alex of them Steele, was, you're probably one of the best indicators of this. Yeah. Some but no, of, some I don't of them know. are asking me questions about what yeah. they're, whether they're going to get discounts. When, when you go to a store, when you guys go to stores in the United States right now, this is probably more of a question because Alex is our retail expert here. When you go to a store, are they busy? Are people shopping? What's happening? You What's want, the anecdotal evidence here? You want to know something funny? I haven't been in I haven't been stores. to a store in a long time. Nobody goes to stores in the United States. I go to sample stores, we go, we go and they're packed. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you. I think we've seen traffic pick up. There's a certain amount of attitude that you people like to be to out in a group and I don't see go to people. Bloomingdale's anymore. The, the, the prices work, are too like high, and their discounts suck. Next door to Bloomberg. To, to Bloomberg is next to Bloomingdale's. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and I used to go all the time, but their prices are just not good enough, and their inventory is just not good enough, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, what's it like on the high street? Uh, it, it has it has got significantly quieter. The, the UK consumer, but the UK consumer hit a wall. I would say in February, March, April. So it, it's it's not as visible now as it was. I'm wondering, and, and it was quite visible then. Things I, I don't go to stores either very often, but I but I tag along when other people in my family go. Mm-hmm, sure, um, I'll tell you what, one thing that didn't. Uh, Perform well was online retailers in mm-hmm. the in the retail sales oh, that's report. Interesting, um, but again, is that because people are shifting what they're buying mm-hmm. to, to more well, services? Restaurants and stuff go up like one point. Restaurants went up uh, on a fairly healthy basis, one point one percent. We don't know if that translates to other services, mm-hmm. but that may be what's happened. Um, you would expect apparel sales to go up at this time of year because it's back to school, and then other things. Uh, we know housing is slowing. Uh, surprisingly, yep. we saw an increase in building material sales, which doesn't really That's compute. Yeah. Uh, and so that may get yep. revised. But uh, sales of furniture uh, and, and appliances were lower. So we're, not, uh, we're seeing some of the fallout from the housing price drop. Okay. Back to school is a kind of constant theme in my house. I, you can buy a few more jumpers. You can buy a few rulers, a few more pencils. Like, they get lost so quickly. Two no boys, way. Like, I cannot close my daughter's again. drawers. I honestly don't understand. She's eight. She has more clothes than my husband. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. My it's not me. Yeah, it's my mother. It no, doesn't <laughs> surprise me either. Yeah, I guess I got yeah. it from somewhere. All right. I think I, we've already bought, had to buy a new ruler. I, we're like four days in. Yeah. It's <laughs> because they lost it. They do that. Yeah. Those kids. Uh, all right, Mike. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. I am your senior retail correspondent here. Uh, doing all year. Maybe they should just give me a budget and I'll go out and spend stuff and just see what happens. <laughs> Maybe we should pitch that guy. Yeah. 
Uh, what do they call them? Silent shoppers or something like that? Huh? That could be a great job. Is that me? People I don't know, but I want it. Like, they go out and shop for, for a living. That sounds like a great job. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>